Let's go. This is Taylor Berryman, and you are listening to the Poptimist Podcast. And today on the podcast, we have bass player Joe Birmingham. How are you doing today, Joe? Doing good. Doing good. A little tired, but good. Were you gigging last night? Yeah. Yeah, I played late. Where were you playing at? I was downtown, um, downtown Nashville, playing at Legends Corner. Legends Corner. And is that like a, a steady gig for you? Are you playing that every single week? That's a, yeah, that's my regular Tuesday night, pretty much every week. And how many nights a week are you gigging? Um, right now, about five on a slow week. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So what do you think has contributed to the fact that you're you're gigging so much? Like, what are some things that you've done music-wise, like professional-wise, that have set you apart to where you've been able to get so many gigs? Um, I think the thing that separates me from a lot of people is just work ethic is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of cats who are great players, but they they don't want to they don't want to work on tunes at home they just will kind of wing it and I'm they very, fake it yeah yeah and, and i mean obviously there, there's times where i have to do that but i try to be on point and learn the material that is kind of the standard to what gets called on these gigs and then know it inside and out and and know the bass parts and know the kick drum patterns and know everything i need to know so that when i play it's gonna sound like the artist playing it. Yeah. So, how many songs would you do you know right now of all these country tunes? You know, I don't, I don't know. I used to have an idea because I had a list. Now it's yeah. just I just play and <laughs> you know I'm always mm-hmm. adding more songs. So I don't really keep track, but there's there's a lot in my head right now, and I still have a lot to learn. Um, but I mean, that's the whole point of being a musician. You're never gonna. You're never going to know everything. You're never going to, you know, there's always something more to learn. You're never going to know enough, mm-hmm. basically, I think. And you grew up in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, just south of Philadelphia. So did you have, like, a music teacher who instilled that in you when you were growing up? Yeah, I took private lessons. Um, I started off on guitar at age 12 um, with this guy named Rick Giordano, and he was a, a, a local jazz guitar player and and he was the guy like when Nat King Cole would come to town if he didn't have a guitar player they would call him like mm-hmm. he got called by a lot of these jazz artists and like the, especially the singers liked working with him because if they just wanted to do a small uh, kind of show where it was just an accompanist and them mm-hmm. he was able to not only accompany them but when he went to solo could solo play chord changes at the same time do a lot of different stuff like that, so he was very versatile, um, and then I, I started taking bass lessons through him as well, um, and then it all snowballed until I went to college. So how'd you get started on bass, what made the jump happen? Um, I just, I was playing guitar, and when I graduated middle school, my parents asked me wanted, asked me what I wanted um, as a graduation gift, and I figured, well, why not just get a bass just to have, and tinker around with. I didn't think, I always thought I was going to be a guitar player. I never thought, oh yeah, I, I want to be No a one thinks player. they're going to be a bass player. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and I hate to be that typical guy, but, yeah. you know, it, it is what it is, and uh, they got me a little, you know, uh, 
Squire PJ, you know, had mile high action on it, and it, I mean, it was good for the time, and, and uh, that's pretty much how I got started. I was like, yeah, I just want a base, like, so I can start just having another thing under my belt, and they were like, all right, sure. So, was it was it an Indonesian PJ? Was it I one of those? So, yeah. Yeah, that, like, that was, was one like of my first yeah, bases, like too. Yeah, early 2000s yep. Squire, so Just probably. shitty, horrible. Yeah. yeah. Horrible. Like, I mean, they, they sounded okay well, yeah, for, for what they good. were, but, the, the, like, you couldn't adjust the action on the neck because it didn't really, it was yeah, like. Yeah, the truss rod had no give. Yeah, so yeah. it was just like, boom, it went all yeah. the way to the other side whenever you were trying to do it. Yeah, in the summertime, when it would get humid out, it would just warp. Oh, and, yeah. And. and you could see the giant curve in it, and I'm just yeah. like, well, I mean, this is all that I got, so. <laughs> well, it makes your hands super strong. I think well, learning yeah. on a shitty instrument is so integral, because when you have an actual good one, oh, yeah. then you're like, wow, this is an actual good instrument. I know oh, I sure, can yeah. feel that it, the neck feels good, which I think is probably the most oh, yeah. the most crucial part. Oh, yeah, for me, that's, that's the first thing I look at anytime I pick up a bass. I don't care what the body weight is the first things I always look at are what well, how does the neck feel and if I strap it on is it gonna neck dive is it balanced mm-hmm. those are my big you know things for sure have you ever played any of those uh I've only played the Epiphone Thunderbirds but have you ever played any of those Thunderbird bases I haven't um I've tinkered around the guy who builds the bases I use now has a Thunderbird style model and I've tinkered around tinkered around with his at the shop but I've never taken one out on a gig yeah um, but also the one I was playing at his shop it was an uh, it was an eight string an eight string you like Thunderbird yeah. model yeah so it was like the, it was like the uh, it's like John Paul Jones yeah, yeah. Like you had to hold down two strings at once and it was cool it had a, like a weird sound and, and I mean it was fun but I definitely would not invest in that bass just because the practicality like maybe yeah. like down the line if if I had extra money laying around and was like, you know, I want to just do a musical project and it's going to be weird. I feel I like it's a probably a gigging nightmare for a bass. Oh, for sure. But it, it's a lot to maintain yeah. live on I mean, stage. He, and I asked him about it. He t- he's like, yeah, he's like, I specifically built that for Nam just to show that if this is something you want, I can do it. Yeah. You know, and that's the only reason why I did it. And which I actually think somebody bought it <laughs> from him recently, like this prog rock. Basically, of course, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like that's where it would fit, you know. But it, like the strings are close, so you got to use a pick. But yeah, it, it was a cool bass. Like and it, it played great. Like I might eventually get one of his just regular Thunderbirds, but yeah, the eight string was a little a little much. I like uh, I like those Thunderbird basses, but they always have like uh, the Epiphone that I played has such bad neck oh, dive. Yeah. As yeah. soon as you hold it in your hands, it's just like yeah, straight down to the floor. Yeah, you got to wear like like a like a leather a leather strap or something that'll like kind of grip to your yeah. Shirt. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're cool basses. Have you have you played many Gibson basses before? I really haven't. Um, yeah. I, I dabbled, you know, in the music stores with, like, I, I, I forget what it's really called, but I call it the SG bass. Yeah, yeah, like the um, short scale. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, I'm a huge Jack Bruce fan. I was like, oh, well, he played this. Let me try it. Yeah. I'm like, this is way, I'm, I'm 6'4", and I'm built like a linebacker. This just, yeah. this doesn't work for me. <laughs> those, those kind of basses fit me a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're really cool. I think, um... Those kind of the Gibson bases, they sound really good with flat wounds. Like yeah. there's there's oh, one yeah. that I like. Like one of my dream bases, I guess you could say, would be the Gibson Ripper. Have you ever yeah. seen those? I've, those I've, are cool. Yeah, I like the old school stuff like that. Like I've played a couple of rippers at music stores and grabbers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the grabber I think is a really cool kinda 
instrument. It's it's just I think I think just you can on slide the, that pickup. Yeah, right? on that novelty that it's like you can you can I can literally just adjust my tone. It's by. very seventies. Yeah, like oh, the yeah. idea in itself. Oh, but yeah. it's, it's it's they it's, seem cool. Yeah, um, I like the body style on them too. Um, if I was gonna get one, I'd definitely probably get a ripper over a grabber. But they're they're definitely interesting bases, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I like the the ripper too because the early. Brothers Johnson stuff. That's what Lewis Johnson was playing before he made the switch to Music Man. And it's like, you know, they kind of have a slightly jazz tone, but they're kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's like they, um, like I know Mike Hindert from Green Day before yeah. he made the switch to, to Fender. That's what he was playing. Like on that baseline on Longview. Yeah. I, I think he's playing playing one of those, and it just it just has this um. It's like this weird in between a P bass and a J bass tone. Yeah, it's like the sure. high end of, of a of a J bass and that punch, but like the low end and the balls of the P bass. Yeah, no, totally. And and it, yeah, I think it's definitely a versatile instrument. Obviously, because you know, like you said, you know, Green Day used it, Brothers Johnson, two completely different, yeah, <laughs> musically different yeah. genres and eras, even and and. It, it just is it's a fun it definitely is a functional instrument yeah you know but for me i know i'm, I'm more of a fender guy like i don't really i don't play fenders that much anymore but the bases mm-hmm. i play are slightly fender designed so yeah i definitely i prefer fenders as you can tell yeah, yeah. um i mean i have i have that bass right there that uh, we're talking about my 65 jazz bass which i like it but I just I don't want to I don't really want to gig with it I don't want to bring it bring it out of the house like that's why I got that bass right there. Plus I feel like for playing a long time that P bass is just way better. Oh, yeah. yeah, like that that like I like jazz bass next because they're so quick. But if I'm gonna be playing like bass lines, and I kind of want a, a little bit of a bigger neck to kind of run around on. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand. I used to own um, a Mustang bass. It was like a, uh, what was it? It was a, a Mikey, a Squire Mikey Way Mustang bass. Mikey Way was a bass player from My Chemical Romance. Oh, okay. But it was weird. It had this humbucker pickup on it. I think it was like single coil. I don't know what the design was or anything like that, but um, the bass, it looked like something that Ace Freely would have played. It was oh, like really? gold, or not, not gold, silver sparkle. Huh. But um, I was listening back to all the demos that I've recorded over the, the past four or five years, and I realized for all of them, I have been playing that Mustang bass on them. I didn't play that J bass on yeah. one demo that I've that I've done. It's just because they they sing and they're so playful. Yeah. So I really want to. I sold that whenever I moved down from Maine, but I want to get another Mustang bass badly. I think I think I have my eye on one of those Japanese ones yeah. next. Yeah, I haven't I haven't tried too many of them out yet. I want to dig in a little bit and check them out. Um, I'm really curious, actually. To check out when it comes out the uh, the the flea custom jazz. I just I just saw that in Shell Pink, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it looks really cool. And uh, you know, obviously, I think the stack knobs. Yeah, I yeah. think they're doing it because he on the last few records. I know on Stadium Arcadium, he said he was he got really into these vintage jazz bases and bought like fifteen of them. Yeah, and he said it was the first time uh, that he that he really kind of paid attention to tone woods he's like you know i never really he's like i didn't focus on it. i just figured to be the amp that would give you the tone and i just kind of got into it this year and realized wow these are 
instruments that are that so long <laughs> haven't been a tree for so long that they don't know they know they're an instrument now and not a tree yeah you know and that's funny and uh which i'm paraphrasing of course so yeah yeah some article in yeah bass player uh but i think obviously for the world tours and stuff he wants something that'll be close tone wise but that if it gets damaged or whatever <laughs> he won't be twenty thousand dollars out exactly yeah you know so yeah but they look cool and i mean you know the the Fender Custom Shop stuff usually is pretty on point. You know, yeah, badass. So for sure, I I actually met um, I met those builders. Uh, I used to work at this place called Wildwood Guitar Guitars out in Colorado, mm. and um, the uh, the master builder John Cruz. He came out. I think he mainly works on strats and stuff like that. I don't know if he works on any of the bass stuff. Yeah. But um, those guys are pretty cool. Uh, it was cool to just kind of talk to them and hear about the shop and, and all that good stuff. Like at Wildwood, we, they had like a bunch of – they're like I think the number one online dealer for like uh, Fender, Gibson, all the custom oh, shop okay. shit. So the reps were pretty there uh, frequently. But I got to play some crazy fucking guitars oh, while I, I worked there. Oh, I bet. And like the the owner Steve, he has like a pretty cool vintage collection. So he would always be bringing stuff in and out, and just some of the stuff that he has is just like holy shit. Like oh, I get, yeah. it. and being a bass player, it's like I can appreciate it. But he didn't really have much bass stuff. But it it really made me become a little bit of a guitar snob. Yeah, for sure. And kind of understand the difference between all the tones, the woods. You know, before things were illegal and you could just chop down any tree that you yeah. wanted and it oh, sounded yeah. great. Yeah, I mean, you know, those old, especially like those old Fender basses with like Brazilian rosewood necks. Like I've got, yeah. I've got a, I've got a warmth neck on a on a Mexi Jazz that I've swapped out, and when I ordered it, I was like, oh yeah, Brazilian rosewood, that'd be great. And the guy at Warmoth calls me, he's like, hey man, I just want you to know, like, you're getting the last piece of Brazilian rosewood I have. I was like do what? <laughs> like, cause I didn't know yeah. what was going on. He's like, yeah, he's like, there's been a 40 year ban on it. Uh, cause the trees are endangered. So we yep. have to, uh, switch back to Indian Rosewood and, and kind of search out other possibilities. He's like, but I just cut your neck from my last palette of Brazilian Rosewood. He's like, I made you a neck and, this, and a guitar player neck. Like, Oh, well, that's kind of cool. And then I found out after the fact that I ordered it, that I can't take it out of the country or it'll be confiscated. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. Um, a lot of countries, if you travel outside the borders with it, even if you have the bill of sale proving that you bought it before the ban, there's a chance that they might confiscate it. How would they, how would they, how would they know that? I don't know, but it happened to a buddy of mine. They, they temporarily, I think he flew to England and they put a hold on his, uh, 68 jazz bass. And it sat there for three weeks. Holy and, shit! In, in security at Heathrow, and he's back here in the states, like gigging, like, and he's like, "Look, guys, that's like my main base." Yeah. The serial number said, you know, like, and he and he sent all the information to them, and eventually he got it back, you know. And they're like, "Hey, we're sorry about the mix-up. Like, definitely carry that documentation with you, though, if you travel with it again." So, what documentation would would you have to have for something like that? Well, I know for me, I would just need the bill of sale from Warmoth. To prove that, you know, like what, eight years ago I put this neck on and, and that it was because it was literally I had ordered it and then three weeks later that ban <laughs> happened. Well, that whole thing with Gibson happened too where the, the shop got raided. Yeah, yeah. I which remember, was a, a couple of years ago. I, I remember that very well because I had a buddy um, 
friend of mine from college, her I think now husband, uh, he worked for Gibson mm-hmm. at the time and was uh, was a guitar builder there. And yeah, he's like, yeah, one day you know I'm just bolting bridges on because that was my job at the time. Just you know comes down the line and okay, I'm bolting this bridge on and then. The FBI comes in. Did they come in like guns of blazing? Like I don't, I don't know, but I mean, he said it was like FBI SWAT. Like they came in. That's so fucked up. Everybody was like, "Whoa, whoa!" We're like, and he's like, most of the guys there, like some of them got. He's like, I think some of them got a little paranoid because you know they're all old hippies. So yeah, might have had like some weed or something on. Them. Yeah, he's like, but we're just like we're guitar builders, man. Like, yeah, we're not. See that that kind of shit just pisses me off so bad because yeah. like there are so many other things that the government could. Oh, yeah. Be doing besides persecuting people who like it was over the fucking wood too. It was like yeah, okay, I understand was, you couldn't have like a meeting with them, like send someone out say hey. Yeah. By the way, if you, if you don't listen to us, then we're gonna have this watch well, come. And the, and everybody thinks that Gibson was in the wrong, and they really weren't. Um, the issue basically was just paperwork because they were using. Um, I think it was Indian rosewood. Mm-hmm. Anytime they had to use rosewood, and you know, which is common, you know, Fender uses it. Everybody uses Indian yeah. rosewood. But I think Indian law like cannot export something unless it's like a completed product. I can't remember the guy. He explained it to me. I remember hearing about this. Yeah, yeah. and he explained it. It was like a checkbox, pretty much yeah, on the paperwork. Exactly, and. You know, because it was it was labeled as one thing and then and then shipped out and yeah, it just was all just paperwork BS, you know, and, and yeah, that's all it came down to. It was just somebody messed up on the one end and You think that's just a phone call that they can make and be like, Hey, by the way, uh Well, I think that's what ended up resolving it was <laughs> basically Gibson was like, Look, here's our distributor for this wood. Call them. And they did, and and that's when it just all went away. I mean, but my buddy, he did get a, a paid two week vacation though. <laughs> so they shut the shop down for two weeks. Yeah, the shop was shut down for about two weeks. I think it, it was a, it was a little bit of time. Like you think it'd be something that would be resolved. Like, well, it's the day. government, so yeah. something that should take a day would probably take two weeks. Yeah, you know, and and like the day the day it happened, like basically. The, the feds were like, step back from your stations, take, if you need your wallet, your keys, any personal items, but do not take any tools, do not take anything. Literally, like, he's like, yeah, he's like, we just all That's walked so out. so fucking stupid. You know, he's like, we all walked out, and we didn't want to, like, go home, because we didn't know if we'd be called back in, like, if it would get resolved that day. He's like, so we just, you know, he's like, me and a bunch of the guys just drove around, went to, like, Rock Block Guitars, and, like, uh, British Audio, and Corner Music, and, like, yeah. checked out all these, you know... Little local guitar shops and stuff, and that's you know that's what we did with the rest of our day. What's your uh, favorite guitar shop here in town? Um, I shop at Corner Music down on uh, 12 South a mm-hmm. lot. Um, that's pretty much where I go if I need strings and most of my stuff. Uh, I shop there a lot, just primarily too. Well, one because I like that it's been there forever. It's local. How long have they been open for? I think. It's been like forty or fifty years. They've been there oh, a while. Oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah, they've been there a while. That's they're, a long time. they're like a Nashville institution. I've been there for uh, a couple times, and I like that place a lot. Yeah, it has it has like an old school music yeah. store vibe. Yeah, exactly. The way it should, like musicians store. Yeah, and and nobody like when I go in there, like the checks that I'll you know they'll ask me how I'm doing, but they won't. It's not like the Guitar Center thing where they're breathing down your yeah. neck trying to make a sale, dude. Fuck Guitar Center. Yeah, because I mean all the guys at all the guys at Corner. 
um, the way that place works, they're all on salary. So they don't... The, like, the sales help them, I think. Yeah. But if they don't make a sale, they're still getting paid for that day. Yeah. Um, so I love going down there. And, and JD over there, he's kind of like the base guru in mm-hmm. corner. He, he's a great guy. Like, every time I... Every time I've gone in, I'll, like, you know, find a base and plug in. I'll be like, okay, well, like, like when the new Fender basement amps came out, I was like, oh, I really want to try these. And they had the four tens and the and the heads. And I was like, all right, let's kick this on. And I'm playing. And the volume's not real loud because I, I want to be kind of, I want to be respectful. You don't want to be that guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, JD comes over and he's like, man, he's like, turn that shit up. And he cranks the volume way up. And he's like, look. He's like, here's my thoughts. He's like, if you're gonna try something out, and I'm gonna, and you want me to sell it to you, play it like you're gonna play it live. Yeah, like, cool. All right, <laughs> you know. So, are you playing a, a bass band now? Is that the no, kind of amp you're using? No, I'm, I'm still. Uh, I use Ampegs. I'm, I'm a big Ampeg guy. Me too. I've kind of been around the uh, around the block, so to speak, with amps. Started off as Ampeg, and then was like, well, I need to find like that new cool sound and then I went to Mark Bass and they were great amps too like um and and for what I was doing they were really good because they had that that bright kind of punch that could really cut over the mix um you know which if you're playing in a 13-piece soul band is great and then I got the Nashville and it it just tone-wise didn't really fit what I was doing so I got rid of that and switched to Aguilar dug that I love their stuff I use their pickups pretty much in almost all my bases. I love their pickups, and I love their amps. They're great amps, um, but again, it just wasn't the tone I was looking for. And then I was thinking about going to GK, and a buddy of mine talked me out of that. <laughs> and then I uh, I got to play on my buddy Sean Scruggs rig, and he's uh, he's a diehard Ampeg guy, and he's an Ampeg artist, actually. Um, I played on his rig, and it was just a... I think it was just the... Uh, the new, their new 212, um, it's supposed to will be linked up with this tube head. I forget the name of it, but it's it's based off of a tube head from the 70s. Um, but it was just a 212 with a Portaflex 800, which is... Dude, you know, I, I have to say, Ampeg amps, man, they just sound, the, the, like, the tone, I would describe them as sweet. Yeah. Like, they sound a lot sweeter than, than other amps. They're, like, deep and rich. But there's a sweetness there that other amps just don't possess. Oh, for sure. I feel like they they really get you that that good mix of of you know not too bassy, not too much mid range, not too much high. End. It's, mm-hmm. it's it's I think uh, it's, it's like a shaved tone. Yeah, and and like uh, Jerry Jamat just said in an interview, he's like, I love Ampeg because it's fat, but it's tight. Like, yes, it that's the perfect it, way it, to yeah, describe it. Gives you that yeah, fat bottom. But it's tight. It's punchy. It's not, yeah, it's not muddy sounding. And yeah, I love their amps, and I'm probably going to keep using them until the day I die. And I mean, there's some other amps out there that I want to get that I think are cool. Yeah. Um, but as far as efficiency goes on stage and just playing live in a band. Oh, yeah. I mean, all my, whether I'm playing a passive bass or an active bass, all my, all my Ampeg amps, I pretty much, I plug in, I don't mess with the ultra high or the ultra low at all I leave that off and I just flatline my EQs at 12 o'clock my bass mids highs are all right at center and it gives me a great tone yeah there's not a lot of amp companies that I can do that a lot of other amps you kind of caught at the mix mm-hmm. your bass and I, yeah. I, and I don't like that that takes too much time especially 
if you're in a situation where you're running from gig to gig, <laughs> room to room, room to room, yeah, yeah, and every room sounds different, exactly. So, are you are you playing backline at a lot of the gigs that you're playing, or do you have to have your own amp? Um, pretty much all the gigs I'm doing now have backline. That's nice. Yeah, um, yeah, it's great not having to drag my gear out. Then it can be anything. You don't care what the tone is, then, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I still care about my tone. I try and achieve quote unquote my sound. Um, sure. And it, luckily, most of downtown Nashville is back all backlined by GK. Yeah. So it's the same head in every room. The only difference is a 412 cab, a 410, or an 810. Yeah. Um, so from playing on them enough, I figured out, okay, if I'm using my five-string PJ, I need to do this. If I'm using my five-string jazz, I need to do this. And... You know, depending on the room too, like, but because I'm playing a lot of the same rooms every week, same time, I know, okay, mm-hmm. our crowd's going to be this big, turn the volume to this, set, flatline my EQ. So you kind of, you're, you're kind of yeah. acting as like a, a chemist for whatever the situation's yeah. going to be. And, you know, it took me a while to get a good sound out of them, um, but then I had a buddy who's a big GK user explain basically the amp to me and how it's different than everything else and I was like oh okay and once I figured that out I just so how are they different than other amps well um on most amps like the the EQs on the GK I found out are kind of like um like a boost like a preamp basically like so the it's it's not really like setting the bass on like even if it's all off there'll still be a presence it'll be very low volume wise and everything so you kind of depending on the room you have to play with them a little bit and, and just basically just turn the knobs till you can find a sound that you like and you know i mean they're great amps and and i know a lot of guys who tour with them regularly and and love them and i mean i like using them and it's great not having to drag out my own stuff you know so I've been thinking about getting one of the uh, the mini SVTs for gigging. Have oh, you seen those? Um, no. They're uh, they're like a, a small version, a mini version of the Ampeg SVTs. Huh. Um, they have a direct in the back, which is pretty appealing. Yeah. Um, you can just separate the head. If like if you just wanted to use the head for practice, you yeah. can plug in your bass, uh, plug in cool. headphones, plug in auxiliary, and I imagine if 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 you're gigging, pretty much what you, I imagine what you do is that you just use your cab as a speaker if you're going direct in anyways. Yeah. So I've been thinking about getting one of those. I think that would be a pretty good investment. Is it, is it a tube head or? No, no. It's all, I think it's all solid state oh, okay. I, or digital. I don't know what it, what it is. I know it's not tube though. Oh, okay. Um, that would be cool if they made tube ones that small, yeah. but I think it, yeah. that would like double the price. Well, another thing... Um, to look into if you're interested. The Portaflex heads, I've, I've been using a Portaflex 800 for the last three years. Is that like the flip top style? No, well, it kind of looks like a flip top, but it doesn't have any tubes or anything. Okay, it's, so it's, it's all digital? Yeah, it's, it's solid state. Um, it's about the size of a laptop. I think I have seen those before. Yeah, like I carry it in a backpack. Usually. Okay. Like if I have to play downtown with it, uh, if I'm going on the road, I bought a pedal train and just Velcroed it and my DI box to the pedal train. Mm-hmm. And then, so, you know, it's basically got a road case. And then when I get to the gig, everything's wired up. I just need to set it on the cab, 
put in the power, put in the speak on, and then we're good to go. Um, but those, and they're, I think they're only like about 600 bucks. That's not bad. Yeah. They're, they're very affordable and they're very, you know, for gigging purposes, like I said, I carry it in a backpack with, you know, most of the time people are going to have cabs wherever you go. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing that, that I've heard from a few of the bass players that I spoke to. There's only a few clubs like in downtown that, that don't have anything. And usually when I play there, I don't even bring an amp anymore. Direct in. Yeah. I just bring my radial plug straight in and just tell them to crank the hell out of my monitor, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, luckily those places that are set up like that, they, uh, they've they got great monitor systems, so it, it, they can handle... Yeah, it's kind of like you have to have one or the other. Yeah, you know. I mean, obviously I would prefer having a bass rig behind me, because um, even if I have a monitor in front of me, I still have bass coming out of that wedge. Yeah. Just to kind of give me a little more, but I like having the rumble under my feet. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, that's why we're bass players, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So. so what are you uh, working on these days? Do you have any projects coming up? Any recording that you're doing? Um, Well, I'm in the middle of uh, trying to write a new record or EP. I don't know what, what it's going to be. It's probably just going to be an EP just because I don't want to do a full-length thing. I just want to do a um, couple songs. Um I'm in the middle of writing some new material, but I don't know when it's going to come off the ground, to be honest, because I'm just so busy with my other gig schedule that it's, you know, and I haven't really, it, it's been a couple of years since I pursued an original project of my own, so mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to dive into it yet. Sure. It's a lot of work because you're going to be the guy who's at the, at yeah. the forefront of everything. Uh, exactly. I'm going to have to do the booking. I'm going to have to make sure that if the club's not paying that, you know whoever I hire gets paid something. So it'll yeah. come out of my pocket and, uh, you know, it, it's something I want to do possibly, but, um, like I said, I might just write a couple songs and, and hit the studio and just record and, and just, you know, release like, you know, 150, 200 copies and just call it a day. And, you know, even if I don't make back what I spent on it, just, just to do it for myself. I think that's the thing, man. Like, Things are so fucking crazy in the music industry right now, and oh. everything is just turned turned upside down. Oh. And no one has any idea of which way's up. It's like I do a lot of recording and stuff just on my own, but I feel like anything that I do, I'm just gonna have to release it just because like I I feel it in me to release it. I can't exactly. be concerned. Yeah. Like, is this gonna make a lot of money? Is this gonna be successful? Because I, I feel like those days have come to pass. And talking to some of the some of the people here in Nashville, whether they're like, it's funny because they're a lot of different groups and they each have their own opinion. Like the musicians obviously have an opinion on everything that's going oh, yeah. on. The business people have an opinion that's that's going on. And then the, the, the fans, the people who don't play anything, they have an opinion on what's going on. Yeah, sure. And the one thing that's common with all three of them is that no one likes the, the way that things are right now. Oh, yeah. Everybody mean, feels like it's not benefiting anyone. Well, you got to figure they're using a 50-year-old business plan basically yeah you know that's very true absolutely worked for 50 years but now things are different you know thing it's not 1995 people aren't going to fye or barnes nobles or borders or anywhere that sells cds i mean you know cd sales record sales are down because people are streaming and you know i kind of have mixed feelings about it because I see it definitely 
as the high and low kind of side of things. Like, yeah, like when I released my first CD, like, yeah, I gave a lot of copies out to people. Like, hey, here, check it out, check it out, check it out, check it yeah. out. Um, you know, so obviously streaming, if you're a young artist, it will get your music to people that it might have not have gotten to before, mm-hmm. which is great. But at the same time, too, like, we are in this industry. It is an industry. It is a business. Yeah. You know. Music um, business. Like, yeah. Business is the key word there. Yeah. And because record sales are down, because, you know, it kind of trickles down to everything. Tour budgets go down. Yep. You know, so then, you know, players hired out by artists are making less annually than they used to. Exactly. You know? it's, it's, it's getting kind of scary. And, and, like, right now, like, no, I don't have an artist gig. Um, but I know just doing what I do in the nightclub scene, some of my artist friends, I'm making double or triple what they're making. And they're playing with somebody touring the country on a tour bus. Mm-hmm. And I'm sleeping in my own bed, and it's like, yeah, that would be awesome. I would love to be on a tour bus and tour the world. Like, that is why, a big reason why I became a musician. But it's like, well, if I can make a living doing what I'm doing, like, yes, I'm just playing covers in nightclubs, but... It's better than fucking working. Yeah. Like, working for real. Oh, yeah. It's definitely better than a day job. And, I mean, if I'm playing with an artist... I'm basically in a cover band anyway because I'm covering their tunes, their tunes, yeah. or you know, a lot. Some of the artists don't even write their songs. Yeah, a, a songwriter will write them. So it's like, well, we're covering this a co-writer. Guy's. Yeah, change a word, get a third. Yeah. yeah, we're we're you know covering this guy's songs. But at the end of the day, it's just I got into this because I wanted to play bass for a living, and I luckily am very fortunate to reach that point. You know. But I just want to keep climbing the corporate ladder. <laughs> yeah, then that's that's what it is, man. Like uh, I started thinking, I, I went to a couple like just events on Music Row, and I didn't go there. I didn't want to be like, yeah, I'm a bass player. Yeah, like I want to do this. I, I just was going as like a, a business person, interested in management, because yeah. that, that's a thing that I do just for like day work. Is that I'm a, I do a lot of like uh, sales and shit like that. So I tried to approach it like that, and all these people, man, they're fucking vultures. Oh, for sure. Like, they're just, uh, they're bad people. That's that's all there really is to it. They just take advantage of artists left and right. And Music Row, like you were saying, it's a 50-year business business plan. Yeah. Like, the one thing that I got out of speaking with most, most of those people is that music to them is secondary and money is first, which I understand. I, I understand that completely. But they're also taking big advantage of the artist, and it's like artists are getting are getting fucked over now just because the money's not there. They're the last ones to get paid, yeah. I and mean, it should be the other way around. Everybody else should be, the artist should be the first person to get paid. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know too much about. I usually stay away from Music Row, and I mean, I know there's definitely some shady dealings over there. And, yeah, and, and there's some companies that you know definitely work their tail off to make sure everybody gets what they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I just, yeah, definitely. I, I, I've done, <laughs> I've done a few band leader things here in town and it's all always made me like, nope, 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 nope. Unless I'm on salary, I don't want to be a music director for an artist because it just equals more stress. Um, so like someone's singing and playing guitar out front and then you would be kind of leading the band, making sure everybody shows yeah. up on time. Yeah. Everybody has the charts. They've learned all the parts. Exactly. Going through everything with them. 
Yeah, um, there's uh, a few artists I've, I've worked with here in town, they're, and they're all independent-level artists um, who have management and stuff like that. And, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, the, you know, they're kind of green to the scene, so it'll be like, hey, where should we rehearse? And I'll be like, call this rehearsal space. And they're like, okay, we got it booked. And then, you know, I have to, okay, well, we need, <laughs> here's our budget, okay, we're going <laughs> to a three-piece band. Yeah, no I kidding. would love to have, you know, guitar, keys, fiddle, like everything that's on the record, but that ain't going to happen. So we're going to do just bass, drums, and lead guitar, and luckily the the front person plays acoustic, so that'll fill it in a little bit. Yep. Um, you know, but then, yeah, I'm going to be like, all right, well, who's available? Send out texts. Hey, you you available for the showcase? It's hour long. One rehearsal before here's how many songs we're doing, here's what the pay is, I've got charts for everything. Send that out to 40 different drummers, 40 different guitar players, and, you know, see who... And that's not counting the ones who say yes and then flake out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that that kind of actually happened, which it was a legitimate reason. Uh, this year during Fanfare, I was working with this one artist that I've been working with for a couple of years. Um... Her name's Kayla Calabrese. She's got great tunes, and, and you know, she's a great writer. Uh, but our drummer that I hired uh, a week before calls me up. He's like, dude, he's like, I hate to do this to you. He's like, but I got to back out of this gig. And I was like, all right, well, can you tell me why? He's like, man, he's like, so a couple of years ago, he's like, I had a fight with cancer, and it came back. I was like, that's a legitimate reason. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I had to go in. Well, at least he told you a week out, not yeah. two hours before the game. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, and I was like, that's a very legitimate reason. He's like, you're not mad. I'm like, why would I be mad? I was like, dude, take care of your health and, and yeah. get that. Like, See, that is the, the rarity that I, yeah. like, that's the first thing I've ever heard that's like a legitimate reason here in Nashville. Because yeah. I've personally, I've gotten together with, with a bunch of people. When I first moved here, when we got we got together, we met through yeah. Marcel that yeah. we went to, to Berkeley with, right? Yeah. Um, well, you were like one of the only people who showed up, and it, and it's no surprise to me that you're experiencing success right now and getting work because you showed up. You were I was late because I went to the wrong coffee shop, but you were you were on time. You were, you were probably early. You were early today. Yeah. And that's something I think that that hits home. Like anybody who's doing things in the music business there's just so many fucking flaky people for sure but those i mean they will their talent will carry them to a point you know they will the 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 flakes what i have found at least if there are flaky people they will make it to a point but eventually that reputation will bite them in the ass especially in nashville it's a small town Mm -hmm. especially in the music community it's it's got that small town vibe we all know each other yeah we all know that's true who's playing for what artists because when they're not playing for those artists, they're playing down on Broadway or they're picking up gigs here in town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know, okay, they're, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. But yeah, if you have a flaky reputation and bail on people left and right, it probably will bite you in the ass because people won't want to hire you. Yeah. They'll, they don't want to take that gamble. You know, and I found that that is one of my kind of keys to success is if I say I'm going to do something... I'm going to do it. Like even, you know, if I get hired for a gig and then get called to do a gig on make a, I know I'll make a lot more money on, 
I'll still do the gig I agreed to do. Yeah, that's that's because, the right thing. That's morally you know, the right thing yeah, to do. It's it's all about integrity, and you know, a little piece of me will be griping in the back of my mind for a little bit, like, oh man, I could have made three hundred dollars on this gig, and I'm doing this other one for a hundred bucks. What the hell? But then I'll be like, well, I've got all this stuff coming up too. What's the problem? Have you ever thought about like subbing work out to someone and, oh. and someone that you know you can rely on? Be like, hey, I have this gig that I was supposed to take tonight. Can you do it that way? I can do this other like a farm system. Um, usually, if if I mean, I do sub out work. Um, like if I know I'm going to be out of town or if I get sick or anything like that. But it for me, it, it it's all about integrity. So if I agree weeks in advance to do a gig with somebody and then two days before get called for a better or not better but a more financially lucrative gig sure um i will not sub out the one i agreed to do sure it's just you know it wouldn't sit right with you yeah, yeah it just wouldn't morally sit right with me so i'll call my buddies and be like hey who's available Here's this great gig. You're probably gonna make a ton of money. Well, that's that's the other that's you know. the other smart thing is like I I think with something like I mean it is a business. So with something like that, if you're subbing out work and you give someone a really good gig, they're gonna remember that in the back oh, of their yeah. head and, and like, hey, he got me a, a paycheck. That is that has happened a lot, and you know it. A lot of guys, uh, a lot of bass players that I know that that play like the downtown scene and and the club scene here in town. You know, when I was kind of new and green to everything. They were throwing me kind of the the shitty gigs they didn't want. You sure, know, it yeah. It wasn't necessarily the best bands. The pay wasn't that great. Yeah, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah, when you're you know 23, 24, new to Nashville and yeah. eager to play. But that's exactly where I am right now. I'm just like, yeah, whatever, sure, okay, I'll do it. You know, and then there'll be points where I'll be like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, you know, but then you know it'll get back to them that you did well. And then so they'll be like, hey, so, you know, like a very good buddy of mine here in town uh, called me up, and this was years ago, and he's like, hey, man, so here's the deal. He's like, I was supposed to do this wedding gig in Georgetown, just outside of D.C. He's like, expenses covered, travel expenses are covered, uh, we'll feed you at the wedding, and travel's covered. You just need to, like, maybe buy food on the road. I was like, okay. I was like, well, what's the pay? He's like, 400 bucks. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. You know, just mm-hmm. up there, play, and back. No problem. It was right before Christmas. I was like, yeah, I could use the money. And, you know, but he had thrown me a lot of work before that that was just like, okay, I'm going to make $50 tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but it all kind of snowballed, and he entrusted me with doing this. A of, decent gig. Think, a yeah, good, a yeah. good one. Something that you want. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it all worked out, and. I mean, and it turned, you know, it was one of those situations, sometimes you'll do these one-offs that'll, you'll get called again for, and I, I did that, and I've never heard from those guys again. Like, they all liked my playing and stuff, but mm-hmm. they have a regular guy. Yeah, you know? sure. And they're kind of in a different circuit than I am, and, and it just, you know, so they pull from their pool of players. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So, it, it, you know, but it... it we all got along, we all had fun, and, and that's the key, too, is just, you know, no, the, the key to success is, you know, obviously, be on time or early, which yeah. I'm always early for yeah. everything, if I can. Respect, yes, you know, I agree. Um, I, I leave, you know, like last night, I didn't play the band before us, they didn't stop till 10.15, which was when they're supposed to stop. Mm-hmm. 
I was at the gate. I was at the club by nine thirty. I was forty five minutes early just because I knew. Okay, I'm here. My years at the club. I'm good to go. You never know what opportunity is going to pop up if you show up early too in a situation well, like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and I and I don't usually think of it that way. I just think like I don't have the stress like, oh shit, I'm running late. Yeah. I got to park. And That's I the worst run. feeling. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's okay, I'm here, I'm relaxed, I can have a beer, unwind, and then, you know, play. So I think being early, when you say you're going to do something, which is kind of what I'm talking about now, when you say you're going to do something, just do it. You know, like, you agreed to do this. Take that as a verbal contract. You know, treat it like... Especially I'm, with a lot of the older musicians here that, like, in other areas of the of the country or even in just in business that I've encountered, like some of that stuff doesn't matter, but these guys, yeah. a lot of them, their word is gold. Oh yeah. And, and I really respect and admire. Them. Oh yeah. And especially with the older cats, cause a lot of them, you know, you'll see these older, sometimes older bass player or steel player or something playing in a club. And you're like, man, what, are, what, you know, like this guy's a killer player, but then you find out his resume <laughs> and you find out like, yeah, he spent, 15 years on the road with so-and-so. You never know who's yeah. playing with who here. It, exactly. It's just like, they can be an incredible player and have played with nobody, and that, I think that usually means that they're a flake, or they could just be fucking phenomenal and have played with everybody. Well, yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where a lot of those guys, too, like, you know, when I was younger, I was, you know, the first band I ever saw in Nashville was the Don Kelly Band at Roberts. And uh, at the time, he had, he had David Rourke playing bass for him, and he would introduce Dave, and he'd be like, "Oh yeah, this is this was Johnny Cash's last touring bass player before he retired from touring, David Rourke." And he would take an upright solo and do that all upright mm-hmm. rockabilly slap stuff, um, you know. And I'd be sitting there watching, and I'd be like, "Man, like that was really sucked of like gone from." touring the world with Johnny Cash and these other artists to play in a club on Broadway, like this, that, and the other, which, of course, I didn't realize how much money they were making doing that. Mm-hmm. And then I got to talk to him, he's like, dude, he's like, I do this just to, like... He's like, yeah, the money's great. He's like, but this isn't my job. They do it because they, they love it and they want to yeah. play. I was like, well, what's your job? He's like, I do sessions. And then, you know, I went back and kind of checked him out and found out, like, like he does a lot of demo session work. He does some big sessions too, and and that's his. That's how he makes his living. Like mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's like, I got a studio set up at home, so I can do mobile sessions if someone needs to just bounce me tracks. I was like, oh, well, no shit. He's like, yeah. He's like, this is great. He's like, this gig is what he's like. You know, doing sessions pays for my house and car, and and if I want to go on vacation, he's like, this gig is the I use as my. Well. I want to buy another bass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and, and he kind of, you know, he's like, this is just my rainy day fun gig. You know, and he did it for years, and then he was getting to the point, I mean, he's an older cat, and he was just like, man, he's like, he, he ended up stepping down from, from Don Kelly, and I, I messaged him and asked him about it. He's like, yeah, he's like, I was just between doing the sessions during the day, like, at various studios or at my house, and then having to go downtown and play every Thursday, Friday, Saturday from 6 to 10, He's like, I was just playing way too much. I just couldn't, it was burning me out. He's like, I just couldn't do it. You know, he's like, maybe if I was, you know, 20 years younger, he's like, I, I would have been down because it was, you know, 15 hours. He's like, I was playing bass for 15 hours a day and I just couldn't. Yeah, that's a lot. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I was like, that's understandable. So now Don has uh, 
Slick Joe Fick, which I don't know if you ever seen him play. No. Uh, he, if you ever thought about playing upright, he'll make you change your mind real quick. <laughs> is he? Is he amazing? Uh, he's yeah, he's badass. Um, which is funny because I mean he's a tiny little guy, so his his three quarter size upright looks like a full size next to him. It's really funny, but he he's a younger dude, so like he, uh, I think he was class. What I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I heard he was classically trained and then like got into really got into rockabilly in college and like. He can do that, like, rockabilly slap stuff on upright. Yeah. But, like, the rhythmic patterns he does are not, like, usually it's just, like, triplets. Like, yeah, sure. He'll throw, like, 16th note triplets or just, like, really crazy rhythmic stuff in that you would never hear anyone else do. And, I mean, and he does, like, you know, he'll angle his upright so he can stand on it while playing. Yeah. And does all the, the showboat stuff, which is great. Like, he, he's a really entertaining cat, but he's also just a... Do you play upright? Uh, a little bit, but I sold my upright to get another base. Yeah, I think I remember you mentioning yeah. that. The, um, the five string you have now, right? Yeah, one of my five strings. Yeah, I, I ended up trading in towards one of my bases just because it was sitting in the corner. And I was like, you know what? I mean, eventually I want to get another one, but I'll probably just get like a either a, a plywood base or just a, a, a hybrid one where it's like got the car top and back and then the uh, plywood size but for now I'm just like you know I just got too much stuff going on on electric and you know I re- what, what really what really made me uh, <laughs> inspired me to be okay with letting my upright go was I uh, was reading an article with Ron Carter you know who's yeah yeah you know, one of the greatest base, living bass players and he said, they asked him, they're like, why don't you double anymore? He's like, man, he's like, I did a lot of doubling in the 60s and then some in the 70s. And he's like, and then after a while, I just gave it up. <laughs> he's like, you know, and then Jocko hit the scene and he's like, then I really was like, nope. He's like, I just realized they're just two different animals. And he's like, you know, upright's my thing. He's like, there's other cats that'll be the electric guys. Let them do it. So does he play? Does he play at all anymore? He plays upright. I mean, he just play. Okay, yeah, he, so yeah, he does. Like, he yeah, still does. Yeah, like yeah. he teaches at Juilliard, but then he, I mean, he tours. Like he, you know, even at his age, he's like I think at his eighties now. Yeah, and he's got a ridiculous tour schedule. <laughs> yeah, because he's a, he's like a living legend. Yeah, you know, which I like it too. That I mean, that's kind of the aspirations I live to that I want is like okay, if I take care of myself, you know. And, and treat my body right, don't drink too much, don't do drugs, work out, eat right. I want to play into my 80s and still tour and teach and do what he does because he's, you know, it keeps you young, I feel like. You know, yeah, it does. You know, like maybe one day I want to retire, but... <laughs> well, the great thing about music, too, is that there are always going to be musicians who are coming up and they're, like, one day we're going to be in our 50s and there are going to be guys who are our age right now. Well, exactly who we're going to be around and they're going to be telling us and like showing us new stuff that we haven't heard of yeah. and we'll, we're going to be teaching them. Yeah, we'll be showing them, okay, well, here's some tricks that I learned along the way. Yeah. And take it as, as you will. I've, I personally, I've had a lot of mentors in music that have always kind of guided me along. Was it was it similar for you too? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, it all started, you know, with my, my private instructor when I was a kid and then uh, I had uh, <clears throat> my sophomore year of high school um, the band director we had, he literally taught at my school for one year. Like, because the guy 
when I started high school, my freshman year, that guy, he decided to move to a different school because the class that was graduating that year was the class that started with him. Sure, so yeah, he, a lot of music teachers do that. Yeah, so he's like, I just, he, he didn't want to continue with a new class, he just, because these kids that he had grown with, because it was his first teaching job right out of yep. college, like, so he had grown with them just as much as they had grown with him, so he decided to just bail, I mean, which I understand, um, so my sophomore year, we had this one teacher, and he was a badass fucking jazz tenor player, and he's kind of the guy that told me about Jacob Pistorius and Stanley Clark, and kind of all these... He opened your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, you know and told me to, like, check this out, check that out, and really kind of pushed my boundaries sonically and, and got me into a lot of cool stuff. Um, so, you know, he was kind of, like, outside of my uh, private instructor was, like, my first kind of music mentor to, to kind of get me to check stuff out. And then when I hit college, I had a lot of that, obviously, you know, being in a music school. And, Berkeley. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, my first, uh, my first private instructor up there, Lenny Stallworth, he definitely became another one of those kind of music gurus for me mm-hmm. and got me into a lot of stuff. Like, he's the guy who got me into James Jamerson and turned me into a Jamerson, uh, yeah, know, and a mo- just a Motown. Well, if you uh, take a look at that, oh, yeah. that bass, I, I have uh, actually, we're looking at my, uh, my 62 reissue Fender P bass that I use as my gigging bass. And I actually have the mute in there is like a, a sock that I, I oh. cut up, and it just it just sounds so good. Like it doesn't it, it, fenders are just so fucking reliable. Oh yeah. But um yeah, I mean I I know for me like I always had teachers that did you have any ones that were really crazy that would like whiplash style maybe not that extreme but yeah yeah, yeah um one of my <laughs> one of my teachers at Berkeley um, his name was Anthony Vitti uh, great great bass player um great teacher too you know he he i studied with him my last two years and he really got my technique on point and my time and a lot of other stuff that you know he saw the kind of the 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 holes and he helped me fill them in you know and but it was definitely (laughs) you know he he didn't he didn't hold back punching (laughs) yeah Um, which was good. Yeah. You know, it definitely was I think good. it's valuable. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes it can, it can be a little rough. Um, you know, there definitely, I think there was a few moments in, in my time of studying with him where he realized, okay, we need to pump the brakes a little bit because I'm about to make a big man cry. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> um, you know, but like his philosophy was, okay, I'm assigning you this stuff, learn it, you know, cause he would have these like Chuck Rainey Steely Dan transcriptions that he would make yeah. him read and, and he had all the like he's got a lot of great uh, uh, workbooks um, for reading um, and his his thoughts on it were always okay uh, you know learn this like it's a gig and when we come in like he would have a drum loop that I'd play it to or like if it was you know the Steely Dan thing I'd play it to the recording um, but have the volume set real low so he could really hear me over the volume, over the recording. Um, and like with his stuff from it, you know, all this stuff, he would be always like, look, he's like, imagine every lesson is an audition for a gig. 
I'm the guy who has the gig. You know, that's a, such a great, I think a great thing. Like yeah. uh, growing up for me, I had this, this one crazy teacher that actually Marcel played with. It, he wasn't really Marcel's teacher. I, I don't know how they met, but it's this guy, Matt Fogg. Okay. And Matt, he he had this place called Midcoast School of Music. Um, so Marcel played in his wedding band. So Matt opened a music school, and he did like piano. They did ensembles and everything like that. And I would go in sometimes to like rehearsal, and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be ready, or I would sound like shit. Yeah, I was like 16, yeah. 17, something like that. You're just a stupid kid doing doing this. And Matt would just stop the entire band because if the bass isn't there, everything falls the fuck apart. And he would just stop and be like, why aren't you ready? And like ask me, everybody would just be looking at me. And I remember there was this this one time, the most valuable gig, the biggest lesson I ever learned with music. We had this gig, we were playing Midnight Train to Georgia, which I I don't know, I was was probably just about to graduate high school. We were playing at this this, uh, basically showcase for the past, I don't know, 12 weeks or whatever it is, of us playing all these songs, and Midnight Train to Georgia the whole time I had been just shitting myself on and not nailing yeah. it, not nailing the changes. And we played, we went into it, we started off, and I fucked up the changes within like the first eight bars. He stops, he leans over to me, he puts his hand over the microphone so no one can hear him. He's like, you're dropping bass notes left and right, I'm gonna need you to get your shit together. Then he counted it off right away, fucking nailed the song. Yeah. And it was it was like one of the most rewarding experiences uh-huh. I had. But I think it's so important to have a music teacher who has that philosophy of, I have the gig. This is your audition. Yeah, yeah. and and it really, um, you know, studying with him forced me to to, you know, better myself and and you know, because I remember while at, while at Berkeley, you know, I was taking private lessons with him. Um, I was doing my my recital prep thing in my private lesson which basically was an hour long private lesson it was two it was supposed to be two thirty minutes but I just stacked them so I could get an hour lesson out of it um and there were you know there was a lot of times where yeah it just was that kind of old school mentality of like you have to come prepared you have to be better than the guy next to you yeah you know because the working musician mentality. Yeah. The okay. Do you want to eat ramen this week, or do you want to eat steak? You know. And, yeah. And that's kind of a philosophy I've, I've again have carried with me over the years, and and that's why I always make it a point to always be as prepared as possible. And there again, there will be situations where you you know you uh, get called two days before a gig and you get sent a set list of 60 obscure songs and you're like, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's when you just get out the pen and paper and you chart everything out and, you know, the, and then just on the ride there, you know, usually situations like that, it's, it's an out-of-town gig, so you've got like an eight-hour ride to listen to everything. You know, you won't play the exact bass lines, but just recreate... You know, learn any, learn any signature licks if there are. Like if it's you know something where a bass doubles, you know, a guitar lick, obviously. But yeah, you just kind of okay. It's this like Midnight Train in Georgia. I have yet to sit down and transcribe the Bob Babbitt bass line. Mm-hmm. I really want to, and every time I set out to, usually something else comes up. Um, I know the changes, so I'm like, okay, well, I know I've played a lot of Bob Babbitt bass lines. I played yeah. a lot of just you know the R&B of that era. You know his vocabulary. So, so yeah, it, yeah. And it, yeah, so stylistically, I can make it sound like it fits. But 
I definitely want to dive in and you know pick some stuff apart more. But yeah, it's you know there there will be times where you will not feel as prepared as you should be. Obviously, but yeah. You just do your best in those situations. Yeah, that's a that's a, I think a real struggle in itself for me. If I don't feel as prepared as I should be, it do, it doesn't always necessarily mean I was given the tools or resources to, to feel that way, which is kind of what you're talking about. Exactly. You know, and you know, and like I said, I always try to be be as prepared as I can. I always try and show up early. You know, I always. I'm at the point now where when I go to gigs, I always take two bases with me, um, just because on long gigs, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I had, uh, a couple of years ago, I had a situation where I was doing, I was doing like a triple or something, where I was doing like three gigs in one day, all back to back, and I had this, uh, my main base at the time was in the shop, and I was using this uh, Squire five-string P bass, um, that's like the Squire Classic series, I think, like it looked like a vintage bass. Um, do my first two gigs, I get to my third gig, I pull the bass out, the washer and the bolt that hold the input jack in place were gone. So the input jack was just like floating around inside the bass. Oh, so I had to, shit. I had to unscrew the, the pit guard, get the input jack out. I went to the sound guy, I'm like, look man, do you need duct tape or gaff tape? He's like, yeah, what, what do you need? I'm like, I need to MacGyver my bass so it works. So I put the... <laughs> I put the input jack in, and I turned the volume on and hit the string to make sure it, it had connection and sound because it wouldn't stay in. Yeah. So I put it in, and I held it. I'm like, hold this for me. And I start wrapping it with tape. And I had to duct tape my cable into the input jack. Jeez. <laughs> and play for three days like that. Did it work? <laughs> it worked. What, did it go in and out? No. It, it, wow. I, had it, I had it in there real tight, and I just taped it really, really tight. And, and you know, it was a scary situation because you know you've, it's like oh shit I gotta play in 15 minutes and my bass is fucked yeah and I don't have anything else with me so then I was like alright we need to always have a backup and you know now I you know I've got a double gig bag and I always have both my main bases with me that I use primarily on gigs and I'm like alright I feel safer now yeah I <laughs> bet know? So in regards, I guess, uh, kind of what we were talking about earlier, the music industry and everything like that, what, what do you feel uh, as far as the quality of work that's been being put out? Is there anything that you really are listening to, anyone newer that you think, wow, these guys are great? Um, honestly, no. <laughs> it, well, no. It, it, it's not that I, I don't think there's good music out there. There is. Um, I just... I love Bruno Mars, actually. Um, he's really yeah, good. Yeah, you know, he's probably one of the newer artists that I enjoy. Um, the issue is, when I li- like, if I'm listening to the radio in my car, a lot of times I'm listening to the classic rock station. Sure. Um, or I'm listening to, like, 96.3, which, you know, does, they don't really, they play a lot of 80s pop. You know, I, I'm sure you've listened to Jack FM, and, you know, they they... They play a lot of mix of stuff, but I feel like I rarely hear new songs on there like it's all like a lot of stuff from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s which is great you know it's all stuff I love um but yeah I just I mean I need to get more in tune I think with what's going on have you listened to Sturgill at all Sturgill Simpson yeah have you listened to his new record I haven't heard his new record yet it's it's fucking phenomenal yeah it's good um obviously I I love Chris Stapleton I love the Traveler album that's a great record um you know and and yeah, I just, I mean, I, I, 
know a lot of the new pop country because um, one of the guys I play with, that's what yeah. he loves to do. Or you know, he would he he's of the mindset. He's like, I would love to just do '90s country. He's like, but for the time slots we're playing, this is what they want to hear because that's who's going to be there. Yeah, the and, and yeah, exactly. The younger, the 21 to 30, you know, um, kind of audience. Um, so I kind of learn about as far as pop country goes what's going on I learn about through him because he'll yeah. be like hey learn this song this new song by Florida Georgia Line I'll be like okay and I'll go and check it out like, alright cool we got it so do you do you like any of that stuff or are you just kind of playing it um I mean some of it I like some of it I don't um a lot of it's fun to play yeah exactly you know, yeah it, I it, would agree with that it's fun music to play and <laughs> obviously if any of those artists called me to, to tour for them I'd be absolutely I'd be yes. on in a heartbeat 100% yeah um but I actually like as far as like just listening to music for enjoyment, um, which I don't do as much anymore as I should, uh, just because when you're constantly playing, constantly having to learn tunes, like a lot of times the last thing you want to do is, is listen, listen to music. music. Yeah, you know, and it's because too from learning having to learn so much stuff, my analytical brain is kicked on. So I'll be listening to something, and I'll listen to it. I'll listen to it once, and I'll be like, oh, okay, cool, but then I'll start picking it apart and analyzing it, like, oh, okay, so you did one major to a four to a two minor, okay, you know, yeah, kind of picking apart the chord changes and then the bass line, and I'll be like, oh god, turn it off, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to turn that off, especially yeah. if you're if you're listening to tunes and just deconstructing like exactly. the kind of chords that they're doing. Mm -hmm. When you sit down to actually just listen to something, or if you're doing something else, typing on your yeah. your computer, I have to turn shit off because I'm just like. I can't do that right now because I'm just thinking about the songwriting, or I'm thinking about the production, well, exactly. or I'm thinking about the bass player. Mm -hmm. it's, so I it's have the same problem, and, and which is a good problem to have, especially if you're a professional musician. Because sure, it, that is what makes you learn material quicker. Yeah, you know. But there's times where you know there, there's some artists that I refuse to ever learn their tunes. Like I picked up that uh, I forget the name of the album. Is that the Wallflowers, but it was like that real popular record of theirs. Yeah, Headlight, yeah, and yeah. All their like really big songs on it. I picked that up from from this used bookstore, and, and I put it in my CD player in my car. I'm listening. I'm like, God, these were such great fucking tunes. Like, yeah, it had been almost 20 years since I heard that record, and uh, <laughs> and I and I started to kind of pick it apart. And I was like, No, some things are sacred. Oh uh, yeah, I was yeah. Like, some things are better left alone. Like I don't. I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I Dude, know, I fucking love Bruce Springsteen. I don't know a single Bruce tune. I really? Don't, I don't know how to play a single Bruce song. <laughs> you know, and now, I mean, I could probably go back and learn, but it's one of those things, too, where I'm just like, I love this music so much that I want it to still be... Music. Music and enjoyable and fresh and just, you know, entertainment, basically. You know, I want it to be entertaining. What's your favorite Springsteen record? Um, obviously, Born to Run. Yeah. That's, you know... Uh, that I love the the two others before that like uh, the good the bad was the E Street yeah the good the bad E Street, e Street shuffle and yeah. from Asbury Park they yeah were, they were great records and it's really I mean it's it's great that people know about them now but I mean obviously like when those two records the first two records came out they got swept under the rug yeah nobody you know, nobody cared yeah. yeah it wasn't until Born to Run came out that people were like went back and were like oh shit you know? yeah and, and so. I really love Darkness on the Edge of Town. I think the, that's my favorite yeah, Springsteen one because it's it's just such stark contrast to Born to oh, Run. Yeah. Like, I love Born to Run. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. But Darkness on the Edge of Town, 
It's like realizing, like, Born to Run was the idealism of, like, yeah. getting out of your hometown and yeah. going to do something. And darkness on the edge of town was you left, you came back, and now everything's kind of the same as as if, like, except that idealism just not there anymore. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. That's And, and that's the great thing about Bruce is he, you know, his music is, is very blue-collar, obviously, but, he, you know, but it's it's honest and that's that's what i feel i guess coming back to uh what's on the radio today that's what i feel is lacking honesty is i would agree with that for sure you know that's why i think Cyril simpson's blowing up and chris Stapleton. absolutely i 150 percent um, agree with that you know like i would even say bruno mars like you know yeah his stuff's like kind of poppy and fun but There's a level of authenticness that's yeah, there with him, though. Yeah, like, you can tell even with his new stuff, like, Bruno has been Bruno through everything. Yeah. You know, um... And, his and, M.O. hasn't changed as an artist. Exactly, and and it's just definitely not enough artists... Uh, too many artists are, are under control of the rec- record company, you yeah. know? And <clears throat> not enough of them are standing up to the record company and be like, no. This is what I want to do. Yeah. You know, like, I'm, um, like, Taylor Swift, for example, like, I, I respect her very deeply on, on a business sense. I think, you know, obviously, too, she's on top of the world right now in, in the music industry, so she can, she can do whatever she wants, which, and she is, but in a very good way. Like, I, I love that, you know, she took her stuff down off Spotify and was like, no, like, not to be a jerk, but... If you're gonna want my music, you're gonna have to go out and buy it. And everyone's like, "Oh, that's not gonna work." And then her album became like the top-selling record yeah. in pop at the time. You know, like so it's it's you know 1989, right? That's, yeah, that, that's a good album. There is some really good yeah. pop tunes on. Well, there. exactly. You know, and and I think too, um, you know, and like all her musically speaking, like her older country stuff. Um, you know, it was always fun stuff to play. Like, I just, <laughs> I couldn't relate to it because I wasn't a 16-year-old girl. Oh, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> you know, so lyrically I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure this appeals to somebody. Yeah. But again, you know, there's that level of honesty that, you know, what she presented at the time was her. Yeah. You know, um, did I necessarily like it all? No. But again, I wasn't a 16-year-old girl at one point. Um... I think I might have seen her one morning at Kroger. Oh, it's very possible. I'm uh, sure. I used to live over in East Nashville yeah. in Inglewood. Okay. So it was like about as far northeast Nashville as you can get before you get to Madison. Yeah. And I was there. It was super early in the morning. And I see this chick walk by me. And I'm like, was that Taylor Swift? Yeah. And I turn, I turn around and she was like walking past me and she smiled. And I'm still not 100% sure if it was her or not because it was, it was early. She yeah. wasn't done up. But I went across the street because I used to go in there every morning because I had to catch a bus downtown when I worked downtown. Yeah. And I was out at the bus stop, and then I see this this huge SUV just roll out of there. It looked like it was like an Escalade. With, yeah. Uh, it was something something similar to that, just something yeah. that's completely pent out. So yeah. I'm pretty sure it was her. Yeah, I mean, there's a high chance. I know I know she's living a lot in New York now because she's doing the more pop thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. Obviously, but she's still got... Um, a house down here and I think she owns like a condo in the Gulch and like stuff like that and I mean people used to see her you know bouncing around all the time and I mean you you, you can pretty much see any of those artists all the time I was Nashville's still small enough to where that happens yeah I mean I was uh, 
when I had my old Impala, I was driving around and I was having to take it into the shop because the, uh, <laughs> the Freon needed to be recharged in the air conditioner, which is not good in the middle of July in Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in my Impala sweating my butt off and this <clears throat> car pulls up next to me. It's a convertible and, and I look over and there's a guy and his beautiful wife and and I'm sitting there and I look over again. I'm like, that guy looks really familiar. He looks really... So does she, actually. And I'm like, where, where the fuck do I know these people from? I mean, you know, he's driving like a BMW or a Lexus, something. You know, a real fancy car. And and, and I had a... Uh, I had a Brad Paisley CD in my car playing at the time. And the guy yells, he's like, hey, he's like, do you like that guy? And I turn down, I'm like, what? He's like, that music, you like it? I'm like, yeah, I, I, I dig this album. I think it's real good. I think it was like the guitar album he did where it was... Dude, he can fucking shred, man. Oh, He's yeah. a good... Gu- okay. He might be the best guitarist okay. like in Nashville. Oh, yeah. Well, I, uh, I mean, he's definitely up there. He, yeah. He, he can be thrown into a lot of situations. And he definitely. plays that B-Bender telly? Yeah. Well, actually, it's a G-Bender. A G-Bender. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't, I don't know, obviously, enough about guitars to know why he chose that over a b-bender that's some guitar but, geek shit that we'll never understand yeah, yeah. That, that, that's for them to discuss yeah. on their podcast <laughs> <laughs> but you know he yells at me he's like yeah you like that i'm like yeah and then i look at him and it like hits me i'm like that's brad paisley that's and, and he saw like the recognition on my face yeah. and he's got a shit-eating grin he's like thanks man have a good day and he just peels off and the light turns oh, green man. and i'm like that's why I recognized him and his wife, because it's Brad Paisley and his wife, whose name I can never remember, but I know her from, you know, uh, oh, what was that movie that she was in? She's an actress? Yeah. Uh, she's in that movie with Steve Martin. Uh, ah, I can't remember, but yeah, it, you know, it was just one of those situations where I was like, well, no shit, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and... I forget, it wasn't, you know, in the usual spot that I figured I would run into a country artist. I wasn't in Green Hills. I wasn't in Bellmead, you know. I think, yeah. I, was, I, think I was on Nolensville Pike. And yeah. I was like, the fuck is Brad Paisley doing on Nolensville Pike? Yeah. That's that's what's great about Nashville is, like, you kind of have to, it's, it's like, it's possible to see somebody anywhere. Oh yeah, because there's different things at different parts of town that we all have to centrally get to. Exactly, and and the thing too that someone told me when I first moved here was never, like basically you never know that guy in the dirty overalls behind you in line at the McDonald's. He could be a millionaire. Yeah, you know. Yeah, like it's not like the Northeast where you know. Okay, that person has a lot of money. Yeah, that person's dark. <laughs> yeah, that person's drinking brandy out of a out of a co- out of a coffee mug. Yeah, yeah. Where down here, you could see a guy in an Armani suit who could be filing for bankruptcy. Yeah, and you could see a guy in a dirty old pair of cowboy boots, an old ripped up pair of blue jeans, driving a beat up pickup truck. He's a millionaire. Who's yeah yeah who could you know pay off my entire student debt in one check if he wanted to. Yeah. You know, and it would be nothing to him. So it, it, I kind of, I love that aspect of of Nashville. And, yeah, and I, everybody's coexisting together. Yeah, you know. So well, I think that's a good note to end on. I appreciate you uh, 
coming on today. Can you just yeah. pl- kind of plug yourself a little bit where people can get at you and uh, how to reach you for any bass playing, any music stuff, anything like that? Um, well, I don't have a website yet. I'm in the process of building it, but uh, I mean, just hit me up on Facebook. Just Google or Facebook search my name, uh, Joe Birmingham. You'll probably find me. Um, feel free to private message me there. Um, that's probably the best way to to get hold of me. It's just through Facebook. Um, I need to I need to get better at my social media. I need to get Twitter and Instagram and all the all the cool all stuff. the things the kids have today. Yeah, all the stuff the cool kids are doing. I'm not I'm not doing. But yeah, uh, hit me up on on Facebook. Just uh, Google search Joe Birmingham B I R M I N G H A M, just like the city, and you'll probably find me. You know, all my profile pictures have me playing bass, so you'll know it's me. Um, yeah, and that's that's pretty much it. And where can we see you play at? Um, I'm pretty much in downtown Nashville multiple nights a week. Uh, every Tuesday, I'm at Legends Corner. Um, Thursdays, I'm usually at, at Crazy Town. Saturdays, I'm at the Stage Upstairs Bar. And then Sundays, I'm at Crazy Town and Crossroads. Those are my usual gigs and then everything else is kind of filling in but pretty much if you bounce around lower broadway you'll you'll be bound to find me somewhere awesome dude well uh, i appreciate you coming on thank you very much thank you